This is the moment you've all been waiting for. Live with the best father and son team on the internet. It's time for Homie and the Dude. What is happening, everyone? This is Homie and the Dude, the father and son TTRPG podcast. And we are delighted and privileged to be joined by C. Mike from Fables D20. C. Mike, we've been waiting for this one for a while. So thank you for joining us. Really, really looking forward to, to kicking back and, uh, and having a great conversation. Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk. I'm excited to talk about D&D, tabletop, and uh, apparently airships. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We'll get into we'll, we'll, we'll get into all that stuff. I wanted to dive in first because I mentioned to you before we kind of started recording that I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. Um, I first kind of found out about you through my discovery of Corridor Digital and the amazing creators that they are over there and the incredible team that you were a part of and the amazing work that you contributed so much to and the, the content that I love so much that you put so much of your time into. I want to ask you, obviously, you know, it's been uh, about four years since you made your I'm Leaving Corridor uh, video. And uh, I, I would love to just know how the transition from being part of that entity to, you know, now going on your own, tackling the open road uh, with Fables D20. How's that transition been for you, dude? Unexpectedly harder than I thought. Mm -hmm. That I, you know, it's you are surrounded by other creators and you have a a day-to-day -day job mm -hmm. and then you head off to do your own thing and you also on top of creating your own thing that you're still trying to figure out how you want to express your creativity right right out of the gate it's just this is the idea but then you have to hone that in over experience taste um and this, and just all the things that come with landing the plane, right? Mm -hmm. um, that plus freelancing to make sure that your creativity is, can survive in case it doesn't hit 100% to whatever the, the platforms that you upload to deem most valuable. Mm -hmm. Um. And you see that even with bigger creators is constantly trying to figure out what does the platform want. And as smaller creators, you got to balance, well, I got to make a living and I got to make this thing that I really want to make. And it's just constantly back and forth. And it's a lot harder than it looks. And when, after I left Corridor and I was able to come back to do Son of a Dungeon and learn even more about making D&D content, that was something that I and the guys talked about is there's not enough information out there to talk about, or maybe there is, and it's just an experience thing is when you go out to make your own thing, you build so much empathy for employers and bosses of smaller companies like corridor, which is a small company, but a big channel mm -hmm. you get empathy for, all the hard work that goes into just making ideas, just running the thing. And it's a lot harder than it looks. Hell yeah. Do you know, I, I love, 
I love every bit of what you said because the level of honesty is just, it's unbelievable. And, and it's something that I feel like, you know, it, it feels like there's like a lock and key system to like, you know, some of these big creators who are like, we're not going to talk about the behind the scenes so much and express, you know, that this is actually a very difficult thing for us. And, you know, the money we're spending on this and the time that we're doing that. And, you know, I, I personally just want to say that it, it was awesome to hear you say that because, you know, it's something that we experience constantly. We're constantly having conversations, Tom and I, about, uh, you know, adjusting our content, adjusting, you know, how, how we're going to afford, you know, the next Kickstarter, how we're going to afford, you know, to, to, to upload, to make thumbnails this month, how we're going to afford to do this and that. And it's not easy, dude, you know, it's, it's that bounce. And we, we literally had a conversation the other day of like, cool, 25 years down the road. If we look back on this, what do we want to have put all our chips on? What do we want to have like said, you know what, we, we banked on it, whether it failed or not, we're happy and we don't live with regret that we yeah. you know, banked on these certain ideas and things that we love. And that's a really hard conversation to have with yourself. And, you know, for us as, as partners, it's a very hard thing to have between us and, and, and discuss, you know, where do we put the time? Where do we put the effort? Where do we put the resources? And, and how do we kind of tackle all of that stuff. So I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think it's something that is not said enough in the TTRPG space, for sure. And I, I think the other thing that resonated for me is what we're looking to explore, continually explore, and it feels like you have done the same with your D&D content, which is you mentioned that you, you want it to be more of a cinematic experience and really kind of, when you compare it to other types of D&D actual plays where you, know, you see four and a half hours of, that's it. It's just, you know, turn on the camera and just let it run and see what happens. Damn you, critical role! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all know who we're talking about. So we, I mean, I started that way too. Um, not out of like a lack of creativity. It was just a lack of means. When Fables started, I only owned the four terabyte hard drive. Mm. That's it. The computer was a borrowed laptop from a place I was working. Yeah. Um, and I had to edit at five frames per second. So I didn't know what I was editing. And I was like, I just need to put it in picture in picture. Mm. <laughs> just put it up. Yeah. And it took me a month to get one episode done. Yeah. Um, I For the camera and audio equipment, I had to borrow it from a friend in... Uh, I'm in Los downtown. Los, I'm not in downtown Los Angeles. I'm in K Town, Los Angeles, and I had to go all the way to Burbank, which is for me around ten miles. So I had to take an Uber to ten miles away, pick up all the equipment, ten miles back, set it up, and often the next day have to return it. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we started in a in our previous apartment, which was a studio with a Murphy bed. So we had to put up the bed just to put up the equipment. And we couldn't just, okay, we're tired after four hours of setup, four hours of gameplay, and now two hours half of takedown has to happen just to pull down the bed. Yeah. Um, and they have to return all the equipment because it's just all borrowed. Yeah. Um, that's how it all started. And now I own all of it <laughs> and we're in a finally in a one bedroom where the tables can just be set for most of the time <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just like 
the the progression of four hours just uncut like here was the game to now like okay there's more brain energy that can be had can we push it to editing can we especially after son of a dungeon where i finally got to have my fingers into what does it feel like to truly cinematically edit down D because tabletop games is uh what's the reference it's like three hours of gameplay but it's only 30 minutes of fun yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's just like cut down what's not needed and fables of aida is really that 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 true expression that i really wanted when we started which is putting all that effort in to make an a cinematic experience with music, sound effects, uh, camera switching. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> that is that is the best. <laughs> that is the best way to describe it. And and you know what? We can truly. I I don't think we've spoken to a lot of people. This this is hilarious. I don't, we've spoken to a lot of people, and never have I heard anything that sounds so similar to to the 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 shit that we deal with on 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 a week to week basis. Uh, so currently we are sat in my living room. This is my living room that we are sat in. Um we, you know, we have lights that we set up about an hour ago. We have a camera on a on a tripod that we set up, you know, our our computing system, all, all the stuff that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's and we have this set for when we do podcasts, we have another set for when we do our UFC live streams, we have another set for when we record the actual play, and we're constantly taking it down, putting it up, taking it down, putting it up and doing all that. So What's interesting is I, I, I love how you were like, you know, we, we then, after solidifying some of that, we then were able to put our mind towards the editing stuff. On our end was <clears throat> almost like a flip of that, uh, an, uh, almost like the opposite side of the coin to that is we started with really heavy editing. So we actually started early on. Um, we, we had all of our own gear just because we had access to things that me as someone who has loved filmmaking my whole life has collected you know, th throughout my childhood and things like that, cameras and lights and little things that I've collected throughout my years and spent my pocket money on. Um, and we started off really heavily edited. You know, we, we were having a, a person sit and, you know, spend hours putting sound effects in, you know, putting, you know, music on top of it, doing all the camera cuts, picture in picture of character art that we had and NPC art and monster art and, you know. Averaging about 25 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Edited. Yeah. 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 Very, very heavy. Yeah. And what we then have done, which is interesting, is we've now transitioned to more of a, a, a live production kind of situation where we don't actually live stream it. We do recordings, but we mm -hmm. have someone who sat doing music, doing like sound effects, doing picture in picture, camera switches, and all that stuff live so that we actually don't even have to do it in post. Now, the only thing we lose from that is obviously we're still putting out episodes that are anywhere between, you know, we aim for about an hour and a half typically, but anywhere between an hour and a half to two hours, you know, of, of recorded time. So it's super interesting to hear your journey, how you kind of started very similarly to us, but we both kind of diverged at a certain point yeah. to, to tackle it in a different manner. That's super interesting to hear. I mean, I think what was funny is my entire time at Corridor, I've never owned a camera. Mm -hmm. So the first time I ever bought a camera was after corridor mm -hmm. <laughs> a lifetime of using it um yeah the the editing with something we do for our current games is it's a balancing act on the audio 
But once you start layering all the music sound effects and stuff, it can get lost and you don't really worry about it. Mm. Is we actually play music and some background sound effects while we play. We yeah. used to not do that, mm. but we do that now, which helps so much in just communicating tone, especially with the lightings change. Mm -hmm. um, and we played on a speaker while recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, what that allows us to do is two major things. Sorry, three major things. First, everyone ha is more synced in the imagination and they feel more tuned in. Second, because we do a lot of editing, I didn't want to just release an edited cinematic version because I felt like there is an experience lost, like the four hour long game to actually just consume because people enjoy that. Yeah. So we use that raw music and ambient soundtrack saved in OBS, mm -hmm. sync it to the uncut where we cut just out the, the breaks that we get up and go around and do stuff. And we release that to our backers. So they have the uncut experience yeah. with the music that was played here at the moment. And then the cinematic version, it's just a reference track that gets swapped out for other sounds and musics. Interesting. That's super. So I, I, I imagine, you know, the microphone setup you have is good enough to not be picking up some of that that stuff so that it's not, you know, too too overbearing, you know, or anything like that for, it's, for, it's, for your guys. It's good unless I start tinkering with the volume of the speaker too much. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. And is that, so that's, it's its own music that's being played that will be different than the music that you're inputting in post. So it's mm -hmm. just a, it's, it's a thematic music that you selected beforehand that you'll be able to switch tracks on or what have you for them to be consumed and enveloped in the story at that particular point. And then in post, you may or may not use that. You may use the same music, but you may not use that. Music. Correct. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, super interesting. Tried. Super interesting. We've had a couple of episodes where we were able to sync up the live production music so we could hear it. Yeah, we at, at one point, because we do, because um, we work with a lot of Americans and, and a lot of cross the ocean stuff, we do a lot of digital um, TTRPG streams as well. And uh, for a while, we were using Discord as our, as one of our main kind of things using, you know, the Craig bot in there to do a lot of the audio recording, backup recording mm -hmm. with the, the, the Craig backwards bot. Um, and, you know, putting in music bots and things like that so everyone else could hear it, as well as then pulling out that music um, in, in post and stuff as well. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. We've, we've strayed a little bit further from that now, but we've now got some other alternatives to, um, uh, specifically when we play in person, everyone in person can hear the music that's that's coming on. But um, when we do it digitally, we still just haven't quite worked out how to get the sound to everyone digitally, as well as then also recording it. And it's yeah. just a just a bit of a if mess you want to do if you want to do that, uh, not to do a, a, a sponsored segment, uh, but Describe is actually working on that system. So that way, and they showed it to me what the clarity of the audio. So you can share the described sounds and musics and stuff through the listening software for wherever you're doing it. Mm -hmm. I think they were talking about Discord as an example, but it sounded clearer than most like digital audio. Mm -hmm. I mean, like when we were talking through it, it sounded clearer than Zoom, Discord, mm -hmm. even some yeah. phone calls I have. 
That's, and I was like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. We, we, do you know what? Uh, thank you for that because I've been, I've been tinkering with it and trying to like work because as much as I'm the dungeon master, it also so happens that I'm the freaking techie guy as well. So I'm, I'm constantly. That's how it to, goes. You know, <laughs> like do, do, do all the little behind the scenes trying to work out um, how it all works and, and how to get all of that working properly. Describe is, it, I saw they're, they're prominent as, as a sponsor of yours. Um, uh, on on your episode so yeah we'll, have, we'll we'll definitely take a take a look at that the, the other thing that i think we we feel in common with you that i think we're, we're continually looking at which is like how do you differentiate yourself and i, I you've taken a really interesting track so i want to touch on it in a second but this this notion of there are literally like I don't hundreds know, of thousands hundreds at <laughs> maybe least hundreds of actual plays out there right um whether now audio wise we might be going into the thousands right but there's a there's a ton of, of actual plays out there. And and differentiating yourself in a in a pretty you know pretty populated market with some sort of you know USP, some sort of like sizzle that that just that thing, that concept is going to differentiate you. And then by then, you know, after that, let's see how we do. Let's see how the DM is, let's see how the story is, let's see how the cast is, let's see how the, the tech is, all of that stuff. But initially, like coming up with something that just gets you noticed in the sea of other, you know, uh, actual plays. So you've done, you've, your tact has been, I'm going to tie mine to like m movie references. So, yeah. we, which, which I think is, is, is interesting. Which is awesome. That's, yeah. that's freaking sick. We, by the way, we love that. We, we, we're movie guys. We vibe with that massively, like yeah. massively. Yeah. So, how much of that though has been like, how am I going to differentiate? Like, what are we going to do so that when people are sifting through that search term actual play on YouTube, how, how are we going to, how much of that has been a real thought of yours of like, how do we make ourselves different? Um, we, we put a lot of thought into it and it's a balancing act of, I want to use the word baby but it's not right. Uh, mm -hmm. SEO friendly titling and marketing mm -hmm. versus genre expectation marketing. Yeah. Um, at first we went hardcore on SEO marketing mm -hmm. and it's not that we didn't see the numbers. We just, we found difficulty in the branding, the tone of branding. And it's like, oh, this doesn't really match the show. It matches the IP that we were branding, but it doesn't match the show. Mm -hmm. And so we went closer to the show and we feel that we like it more because it represents the content in the media better. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> with Jaws specifically, I still think about like, oh, I should put Jaws in the title somewhere. <laughs> but I've taken it out entirely um, because I feel like the pitch of the idea shouldn't be the idea itself, though. So it's like if I say, hey, I made I converted Jaws into a D&D &D adventure. So there's like there's sharks, there's boats. Let's have fun. <clears throat> It, if I say Jaws too much, 
you're going to think, why is the yeah, fantasy game not 1980s fighting a shark? Um, so it's like, OK, so that inconsistency inconsistency does exist. With uh, some of the upcoming adventures, such as like Dante's Peak, I'm going to lean harder into Dante's Peak as the main title because um, I feel like, I guess, branding wise, Curse of Amity Island feels more cinematic than Jaws or Dante's Peak. I was like, what's the cinematic version of that? And I started thinking about all the in-world aspects of it. I was like, no one knows any of this crap. (laughs) Um, Then there's Dracula, which I kind of can't use the word Dracula, but we'll figure that out. The Mummy, um, Wolfman, Twister, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Godfather, Cocaine Owlbear. uh it's it's really like the task i find interesting Mm. it's like this little back-end engine right Mm -hmm. is what we like about a single world like critical role is it's the the same place that we're going to we can build our headcanon with it just like a star wars fantasy we build the canon in our mind so that way we are familiar with the world but when you but that's a lot of content to absorb. So you want to do anthology stories, which is easier to consume, mm-hmm. which is where the whole like movie ideas come from. They're all different movies. Totally. But then you start to care less every adventure because it doesn't matter which one I watch and which one I don't watch because none of it's consistent. Mm-hmm. So combining the two that they're all anthology stories taking place in the same world means oh the the process and the hard difficulty is adapting all that into one consistent fantasy world that stacks every adventure of canon yeah dude all on different places of the timeline as well (laughs) dude i'm I'm blown away by that because you know as as the the lead gm here at hemi and the dude you know um we we're doing the exact same thing as you, you know, we're, you know, and don't get me wrong, like looking at son of a dungeon that like blew my socks off. I remember when the, uh, when the idea was pitched, I remember when you guys, you know, started talking about it and it started becoming public knowledge and, you know, all this kind of conceptuality stuff came out. And I said to Tom, I was like, this is going to shake D and I was like, pe- people don't know what it's going to do yet, but it's going to change the game. Like people, th- this is going to alter the way people do it. And you look at people like Viva La Dirt League who are doing, you know, not not similar, but, you know, kind of similar stuff with their NPC D&D, um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with their green screen and they're dressing up in costume and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, I think it, it's it's finding that USP, but like you said, still having that that genuineness to to what you're creating, that 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 truth behind it of like, this is still an amazing world that has, you know, however many centuries or, or years or whatever, you know, of lore that is consistent. And I, I really take my hat off to you because trying to fit into, you know, and you, you've talked about <laughs> a huge variety of genres of movies just then, you know, everything from, you know, even in your update video, you know, you talk about Jaws, Dante's Peak and A Knight's Tale, which when you look at Oh yeah, at Knight's Tale is coming out next, we're filming that next year too. <laughs> Uh, first of all, <laughs> super hyped for that. One of my favorite movies of all time. I'm super, super hyped for that. 
Um, also love that it's kind of Inception Inception because they're already super aware that it's like a, a fantasy thing but kind of modern and you guys are then doing a <laughs> fantasy thing of a modern thing that's modern yeah. fantasy. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I just have to take my hat off to you, dude. To be able to combine all of that into one world is spectacular. Like the, the level of effort and, and work that it takes to be able to have a section of world where you can run jewels, where you can, you know, have, you know, like a Camelot kind of for Knight's Tale, you know, a place where there's, you know, more of that traditional kind of Western stuff going on, you know, a place where you can have, you know, Dante's Peak and, you know, Godfather and, you know, all, all these different things that realistically, when you look at them, how they tell the stories and how they do some of that and the themes of them are exceedingly different. So to bring that all into one world is is pretty spectacular and I, I have to just say dude like that blew my socks off when you know you you started working on all this and, and kind of getting towards that direction because that's fucking hard dude like that's yeah that's that's, that's some real <laughs> shit right there that's some real shit as a dungeon master you know so i, I just have to i respect the hell out of that what what has been i i guess your biggest challenge with trying to combine all of that what's what's been the thing where you know when you're sat at either the computer or whether you write it by hand or whatever and you're trying to build out these timelines and this lore and all of that what's been the hardest part of making sure it does say uh consistent you know continuity across the whole thing um first hardest thing was how much do i deviate from the original IP. Yeah. Jaws and Curse of Amity Island do deviate a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's just because it was the first dive into this. Like, well, we'll see how this goes. Because Jaws originally started as like, you'll be a fun one shot fighting a shark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On a boat. But then you're <laughs> like, that's not why everyone likes Jaws. Everyone likes Jaws because of the buildup to the fight with the shark. Yeah. Totally. And I was like, ah, oh, crap! Yeah. I need more. I need more material to like. Yeah, <laughs> and it to built out to, to a it. way bigger adventure than it needed to be. Um. Then, so that's one hard part. The next hard part, I think, is figuring out when something happens, mm. uh, because it's not all happening at once. We're jumping. Currently, how the adventures are going. Because after Curse of Amity Island, we have the Lost Mine of Colossal and the Haunting of Ruby Minis Inn, which are two one-shots that don't really have anything to do with a movie, but we had the opportunity to have some fun one-shots, so we quickly wrapped those. Yeah. National Treasure. Oh, okay. So Colossal is very National Treasure. Oh, yeah. Love it. Love it. And then the haunting of Ruby Minis Inn is very haunted mansion, and, cool. haunting. and the haunting kind of slapped together. Have, I love how you have that like. Who's AI, who's this AI omnipotent AI voice? <laughs> no, he he shows up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we we have that, and it's like what I'm currently doing is moving back. Because um, one of the things I was afraid of is just moving forward and just like, okay, here's the world and we'll world build as we go. Where it's like, when I started DMing, one of the biggest reasons to get my own world off the ground was my players knew more about the Forgotten Realms than I did. So I mm. couldn't offer mystery right. or build up 
can write. But at the same time, once you start your own world, there's too much mystery. And everyone's like, what is this and what's that? And you don't have answers. Yeah. And so one time we came to a ruined tower in the rain and we fought some gargoyles. And someone asked, what's the ruins? How old are they? I was like, uh, uh. (laughs) (laughs) so I built a timeline. Yeah. (laughs) And I came up with different ages that happen. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what I was like, okay, here are the ages. This is generally that. Oh, that's a cool name. That's generally that. That's a cool name. And so I was was able to kind of answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So when it came to bringing that world to the show, oh, what's going on with my voice? When bringing that game to the show, uh, my thinking was, okay, let's play this game. And fairly inspired by Conan the Barbarian. It's like, here's the sh- here's this part in the second dawn. We'll play that. And then we're going to move backwards, adventure by adventure. Mm-hmm. So that way we can experience the history, the mm-hmm. buildup of time that led to this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest part about that is not overwriting history. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you that. I was about to say it's that's really a hard. I- that's a wild idea. Yeah, go on. So I, I try to make jumps in time. Yeah. Uh, right now, in the future, I have plans on hitting some overlapping time zones. Mm-hmm. Um. And the what's cool is you can watch. The goal is that you could watch the series either the way it came out mm-hmm. or in chronological order. And you'll have two different experiences. Awesome. Um, which is the same thing about anthology books like Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, what's also really cool is, as a dungeon master, I'm you're normally not worrying about the protagonists in the story. You're worried about the antagonists and their, their plot. Well, moving backwards in time, I'm able to reveal build up to a villain that's happening now in the present, but he's being mentioned as we're going backwards more and more. Mm. And the first time we're going to meet this villain is going to be not in the classic D&D. He's the boss. Mm. No, we're going to meet the villain before they're the villain. Mm. Love that. And the hard parts, I would say, is every t- it, it, it kind of falls into adventure design. What gets locked into place because I'm doing this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, Dante's Peak is a great example. A volcano erupts. Well, it's got to be more than a volcano because it's a fantasy game. Um, but that means we're that's catastrophic. OK, so what's catastrophic? What's bigger than catastrophic? OK, where does that fit in the timeline? Yeah, where it makes sense to things that I've already said mm-hmm. and. Doesn't overwrite the choices and the agencies of the players. But then still adds value so that way you can go back and watch Curse of Amity Island and 
have a sense of the world now behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's probably the hard part. And then making sure that lore and world building doesn't spill into running games. Because running a game is different than building a world and figuring out lore. Totally. I could see um, that would, that would at, at points could really like make your head hurt. What came to mind for me is have you seen the movie Memento with uh, it's an early yep. Nolan movie? So really cool concept. But but in execution, like it it had to be and and also like as a as a, a viewer of the movie, um you're in a position where you can kind of poke holes on it a little bit. But the the concept is beautiful. The delivery of the concept though has to be hugely complicated because you're not only trying to to tell like kind of a linear story but also trying to fill in the gaps of where there are like some possible plot plot holes in the story of how you know um how does this thing unfold the way it does going pretty much backwards or, or flipping backwards and forward backwards and forward and i get this a similar like challenge for me like going backwards you have to almost like understand this much as opposed to this much because potentially this this, i guess the scope as you keep going backwards is really important to understand okay what other dimensions might be affected by this what other connections might be affected by this and if i don't get it right then there might be some big gaps in here there might be some some Mm -hmm. obvious like holes in in the continuity of it is is that something that uh that is in play a little bit it is um i feel like whenever i'm world building i'm keeping in mind the adventures that have happened uh so i feel like i'm living momentum (laughs) (laughs) uh the most important thing and the hardest thing is player agency Mm yeah um I don't I don't want to be in the situation where I'm writing a book and having a one man show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I have to write a book. So players feel like they're in a tangible world. Yeah. So it's like. Whenever we go back. The outcome. Has to be able to be either or win or lose. But yet the event still has to happen. Yeah. So the the one shot's not out, but one of the one shots that we have, the haunting of Ruby and Minnie's Inn, the red dwarf from Curse of Amity Island, Halig, his father is trying to get home for Halig's uh like first week of being alive is he was just born. He got word. He wants to head home. He's hiring adventurers to help him get there in the middle of a decade winter. Mm-hmm. Does the question is, and the, the, the player who plays Halleck, Chris, he's in the one shot playing a whole nother character. And the plot is, Hey buddy, do you save your dad? Or does your character from this other game grow up without a father? That's what this game's gonna figure out. Yeah. Um Dude, the and level, so it's like anything either or could happen. But that event of 
that moment is important for mentioning some character stuff. Yeah. Do you, do you know what's interesting? So we we like <clears throat> play around a little. Bit. I, I I was gonna say we we've we've experienced some of that stuff as well. So uh, my my current homebrew world because I. I uh, very similarly experienced to you. Um, I, I picked up Lost Minds of Fandelver as my very first D and D thing because, uh, as does everyone. Um, and uh, and while running it, I was just like, man, I'm so disingenuine to to this content. Like, I'm just not doing it justice because I don't believe in it. I don't I don't know it well enough. I don't know the area. I don't know like the character, like the NPC. I don't I don't care actually was was what it came down to i was like me personally i don't really care about this world and the stuff in it as much so i came back to you know i need to create my own world that i care about that is something that is going to matter to me and thus matter more to my players and and give them mm -hmm. something to, to to care about and and things like that so i started making my own world as well which i call the sky Realm. and um you know we've we have been running our actual play we're about 30 episodes deep at this point i imagine it will probably run somewhere to i mean we're, we're we're trying to we're trying to round it out realistically but i i reckon we're looking at a 50 uh mark kind of kind of number um and um and it's been it's been a wild journey we've talked about doing series earlier in the timeline and it's that same thing of like choosing a moment in the timeline or a section of the world that almost feels in a, in a weird way disjointed but still you can tease little things so for example you know like tom's first D, &D character that he made for my homebrew world is called ulrich emberhart he's one of my favorite characters just ever and um he's this legend smith he he was once one of the few dragon riders of my world and he's this legendary blacksmith that used to do smithing with his dragon and since then, he, his dragon has been killed, but he still kind of is in the world. And my players since then have met the character, and and Tom Tom has met his own character, like you've said, you know, your your player experience as well. And that's a super rewarding moment. It's a super rewarding moment for people who know Ulrich. People like you know Tom was like, oh my god, it's Ulrich. You know, my mother who plays in our game was like, oh Ulrich. You know, and and it meant a lot in that moment. But in the same way. You want to also have it isolated enough so that you can tease little things, but it, it doesn't, like you said, destroy the continuity of, you know, for example, our, our actual play starts with a cataclysmic event where uh, a gentleman invents a, a gem that is exceedingly powerful because all of our, um, all of our sky zephyrs um, are powered by Ceruleonite power gems, and he invents one that is the most powerful one yet. It's large. It, it can produce the most energy that has ever been been able to be produced in, in a gem ever, basically. And the oppressive powers it be want to use this so that they can oppress everyone else, steal water, and just be awful government. Classic um, stuff uh, along the line. And, you know, if we jump back in the timeline, if our players do anything that affect the, the building of that stone and things like that, then it almost, you know, devalidates it. It makes everything that we did in the Skyrim not real. It makes it, you know, in my opinion, then that continuity is missing. So it's a really hard thing. So, you know, we've talked about doing one's, uh, you know, actual plays inside creatures that are in our world. Like we have the Night Deceiver from the book, which is this huge fish that has cities inside of it that floats around in the skies and eats airships, basically. Right. And we were like, 
let's tell a story of the people that live in what, inside of one of these fish, you know, and, and actually that they need to escape and then experience what the outside world is like on this different timeline and things like that. And so we've spoken about it, but we've not brought it to fruition yet because the concept and why I respect what you're doing so much is because that concept is so hard it's to try and make it happen. It's the butterfly effect, right? Yeah. One little thing. Exactly. Into something else, and then pretty soon that big event or that important event that is, you know, it's key, it's pivotal mm. to your, your world build um, could be affected in a way that it starts not making sense anymore. You start, you know, then you start bending it. Like you said, you want it, you want to allow your players to have agency. And if you get to a place where they're stretching too much into areas that are uncomfortable with, with the world that you've built, now you are you are now struggling with how much agency do I give them because this could start compromising my my big build here. Which is why so, I'll oh go for it. Yeah, go for it. No, dive in. So a couple of things on that. There so there's like a uh two massive dials because my world is flexible. I'm if I Here we go. If Oppenheimer existed in my world mm -hmm. and he is making the atomic bomb and in the process of this we also are talking about how to make the hydrogen bomb. This is a real thing that happened. Uh while this is happening other factions are trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if we're having an adventure having an adventure where Oppenheimer is the villain and mm -hmm we have to stop Oppenheimer from making the atomic bomb. We are not stopping the creation of the atomic bomb. We're stopping Oppenheimer. Mm, love that. So because the, the atomic is... bomb is going to be invented. Yeah. We right. can't stop Judgment Day. Similar to we the left-right can... conundrum of you always lead to the same place. Yeah. It, it's like the big thing that changes the world, somebody will get there. We can't stop innovation. We can't stop people from thinking. Uh, a, a small change in the world that I have is my some of the maps that show up in Curse of Amity Island up north. It says New Iron's Edge. I've already changed the world of that, the name of that city, because it never has happened. We haven't had an adventure there yet, right? Mm -hmm. So now it's called Moldbul. Moldbul is a majocracy that resembles uh, 1920s Germany Ooh, and fascism. Love it. Love it. If they, were, if they were not going to do it, another set of mages who feel like controlling other people because they have the power to do so would pop up somewhere else. Yeah. An adventure that's going to happen there is saving Prince Ryan. Where nice, we... <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's it. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Where we tackle that, and it's like, yeah, we're fighting these guys who went the route of evil dictatorship, and because they did it, that in that ripples across the world. Dante's Peak. Whatever happens at Dante's Peak, even if the players stop the or stop the main thing or save the people of the town. A volcano erupted. 
something bad happened. Um, there are it, like with Sky Zephra, where it's like the gems were made by this person who invented them. If you have an, inve- an adventure around the invention of those gems, that NPC can still die before the creation of them. Maybe a player steps in and finishes it. Um, And history recognized him making it, not the player. Yeah. Because history is full of holes and things that aren't mentioned along the way. Um, And it. Or let's say it does stop. The the NPC can't make the gems and it all collapses but somebody else entirely makes it. And the players just changed history. Mm. And what does that mean canon wise for the players in the previous game who thought he made it? Mm. Um, Rather than going, oh, now the timeline is splitting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Marvel, (laughs) is that you? Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) You, You can chalk it up to well, you guys knew the original person who started it. It's kind of like D&D. Is it Gygax or the other guy? Yeah. You know? Um, or um, you refuse to acknowledge this new person who made it. You focus on this. It wasn't the Russians who made the first atomic bomb. Oppenheimer did all the legwork. They stole mm. his idea. That's mm. why the adventurers in that first adventure see hit that person as the inventor. Yeah. I'll, like you know, Tesla I, and Benjamin Franklin, like the, you know. Yeah, dude, I love it, and it's it's. Thank you for solving a problem for me. Um, and uh, <laughs> no, no, I appreciate it. it's something that you know I've been I've been toiling with for a while, and it's something that um, that is a super interesting headspace. And you're totally right. You know, it's it's about making sure that you know the the large canon events happen, irregardless of you know who's doing it. And realistically, that's how it happens. You know, at, at some point, you know, World War Three is going to happen, and nukes are going to fly, and it's just whether it's Russia, Israel, <laughs> America. You know, it's it, it, it's it's going to happen at some point. You know, so. I fully uh, agree with what you're saying, and I think it's it's a really, really, really solid point. Um, yeah, it's it's a super good strategy. Something else that you know we've done in a way that we've actually solved this problem, and um, I, I, I know that people in the community definitely are not a fan of what I'm about to say. So hot Uh-oh. take, hot take. Um, but we did a series called um, uh, it's it's Avatar: The Last Airbender, uh, The Last Breath basically. And it's a four-part series, basically, set um, in a bit of the the Avatar Last Airbender world timeline that doesn't really get documented much, both in the TV show, in the Magpie game, um, and and, and very much in the world whatsoever. It's um, the inception of the the Hundred-Year War, basically. And we told the story of... um, we told the story of one firebender, uh, one airbend, uh, two airbenders, and one earthbender that were present for the massacres of the um, of the airbending temples across the uh, across the world. And you know, we the, the story, which by the way, I, I have to say, it's the, it's the thing I'm most proud of that we've ever created. I think the the plot is stunning. The 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 work that our players did, Tom being one of them, was just spectacular. You know, I. I, I think back to it and it makes me want to cry even now. It was just such a, you know, a powerful, moving thing that we told. And it felt like one of the few stories that I've ever been like, wow, 
we really needed to tell that story because it it almost hints to things and 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 stuff like that. So what's interesting about the way we did it though is we had a pre kind of destined idea of what each episode, we only did four episodes, what was kind of going to happen in each four episodes with the understanding that the players could go about it and change things and do things as they wanted and deal with the moment in whatever they, way they wanted. We simply just had checkpoints that needed to be hit. Things like, you know, mm. in the first episode, um, we start with this beautiful wedding that's happening between an airbender and an earthbender. And it's this gorgeous ceremony with hundreds of people. It's super, super beautiful. And then the Fire Nation attack. And it's just an absolute shit show. And so we we knew we were going to hit the checkpoint of wedding. We knew we were going to hit the checkpoint of Fire Nation attacking. We didn't know how these guys were going to deal with that stuff happening around them and what decisions they were going to make to, you know, save one another and to, to, to be able to deal with some of this stuff. So we ended up almost writing what I would consider more of a movie because we knew the, 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 and we knew at the end of it that everyone was going to die. We knew, we knew, spoilers for people, we knew uh, that our players were all going to die. We Actually, the concept started with, let's tell a story where there's a TPK at the end, one, like guaranteed, we know there's going to be a TPK at the end, and we know that everyone's going to die, but it's going to be for this beautiful reason, and they're going to have an amazing last stand, and it's just going to be a lot of stuff that kind of links to the Avatar world. And we ended up finding that it worked really well to have this kind of balance between checkpoints and player agency, where we knew we were trying to hit moments, and the players were working towards those moments, but also in between that, dealing with things in a very, you know, standard kind of TTRPG practice way, which is, you know, we're going to make wild decisions. We're going to do hilarious things. We're going to, you know, make ridiculous choices that are going to surprise me and shock me as a, as a GM and, and make me have to think on my toes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it ended up being this, this thing that, you know, we, we, we came away from going, wow, like that was an amazing thing because we had this almost predetermined checkpoint, you know, of, of, of plots that we were, you know, trying to hit. And like you said, and something that I didn't even clock until you just said it was something that I almost built into it was, you know, we, we dealt with the fact that Ang um, had gone missing. Uh, he'd run away and fallen into the water and no one knew where Ang was. Um, we, we had one of the gurus from his temple come to the Eastern temple and tell these guys that Ang is alive, that the avatar exists, that we need to tell the white Lotus that the avatar is alive. This message needs to get to the white Lotus. So one of the NPCs that was part of our party, um, actually was saved by our group of players and was the only person to survive the massacres of the air temples. They then went out into the world and formed the white Lotus that, uh, avatar Ang did exist and that he is alive somewhere out in the world. Um, and there was just this, the, that moment of like, you know, it, it's still very much linked to Ang is alive, the airbenders are dying, and this thing is happening no matter what. But the way we told it was so different to what, you know, Nickelodeon told or, you know, what, what Magpie game kind of had written in their lore and things like that that it ended up being this very unique and, and different kind of tale, which I think, you know, was super, super awesome. But, you know, it, it made me think when you just said that, that we utilize that tool without even knowing it, that, you know, we had these events happening 
irregardless of characters that may not exist in canon lore or or anything like that and all these people and you know we we have you know a Beifong, we have one of uh um toff's ancestors as part of, she, she's one of the characters you know and and you know having that in there having those links meant that you know people can like you said look back on the world history and be like wow oh shit the Beifong family were involved in the massacres at the at the air temples and they actually helped you know save ang and part of it was them getting this information about Aang out. And, you know, it then links Toph and Aang's story even deeper when you then watch the TV show because of, you know, what we told. So, dude, uh, it's a concept that I'd never considered. And I, I really appreciate you uh, enlightening me to that. I love learning, dude. Thank you for teaching me. I want to be the best GM in the world one day. And I can't do that without picking up some tools along the way from incredible people like yourself. So I, I very much appreciate that. Um, Hit it. Is, it. is that only work? best in a short series environment no it works complicated as you as you go further and further. you're talking about the checkpointing yeah, thing the checkpointing. it can work on a long-form campaign um because what you're what you're essentially talking about <clears throat> is partially clue because those checkpoint plots yeah. dungeon masters and game masters have for the most part, have that already. Mm -hmm. Because they're like trying to just have a couple steps ahead of the adventurer. Totally. So that way it's like, I can kind of know where they're going, but at the same time, I'm hyper-focused on the moment. And you're kind of just like letting the players in on some of the major checkpoints that you have prepared for the adventure. Very similar thing is <clears throat> for a Knight's Tale that I'm preparing, we know that we're going to these towns mm -hmm. for the tournament. Those are checkpoints. Yeah. Cool. That's going to happen. Yeah. So we know that our RP is going to be built around those tournaments at those towns and traveling to those towns. Yeah. Um, there are the it being limited to a shorter game is kind of helpful because it's less things everyone is worrying about because that's something players don't have to normally think about so you're kind of having them all be gms at the same time knowing trying to working together to get to what this destination is mm -hmm. um you see that in the calamity game from critical role is yes. everyone knew that it was going to end up a certain way and that there were these couple checkpoints that probably some form of way or another have to happen mm -hmm. and uh the biggest thing that you did right is communicate ahead of time like let's play a game that ends in a tpk story wise not that you guys lose but the story is it is a tpk everyone dies and the fun part is figuring out kind of like a horror game what are the things that you do along the way before it happens? Yep. What changes can you impact on the world and the adventure and the other players before you die? Yeah. Um, so it's all about communication and what is important, especially a short, intimate game like a four episode series. Knowing the checkpoints is actually super helpful for players mm -hmm. because... If you think in a video game kind of sense, knowing 
then I have to get here, go to that town and do that and then go there. Right. Yeah. Like it's understanding the mission of the game. Yeah. Um, I might not know what exactly happens there, but I need to know that I got to go from here to there to there to there. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, a it's a, su it's a it, super solid point. Like in Skyrim, you know, you got to get to Whiterun, but you might get attacked by a troll along the way that you weren't expecting, you know, kind of thing yeah. or, or things like that. Totally. Yeah. Do you, so along those lines, um, and with the knowledge that we are creating, content that in the best hope is being consumed maybe being consumed by a huge audience to, to what extent are you um and maybe your players as well aware of this is a performance for consummation for, it's a great, for i was i was about to i was about to go down this route i was about to go down that route yeah it's like, a great question because like you know like you you said it earlier you know a, a TTRPG game is is three hours or three and a half hours of gameplay and thirty minutes of like fun or or great experience or that type of thing. So when we're we're creating this content, what we do want is that thirty minutes as much as much of that thirty minutes as possible in our content to really engage to hook the audience. How much of that are you guys aware of you as the GM and also your players? Um. So the it's a balancing act. So first, everyone at the table agrees that they perf they like having a camera on them when they play because it, it teaches them to have pressure on their choices. Um, what I've learned is how to adapt making actual play into better habits for just gameplay. It's like less talking over each other because the microphone can't really hear everything. Still fumble at that, but like that's a it's a good habit to build to listening to somebody else waiting your turn. Um, the goal for every game is to entertain each other and play a fun game, and ideally create an interesting story with each other. And the audience get to witness that. Mm. Now, I might, as the dungeon master, remind my players, hey, can you describe what that looks like? That way I can, not just for everyone to hear it, but I have that in the edit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I might flourish my description a little bit here and there just to have that. Um, the but i'm also not changing i am designing my descriptions around my players so i i have adhd i know what can overwhelm people very quickly you walk into a room there are 10 npcs i'm going to describe 10 details about every 10 npcs yeah. podcast might be okay with that <laughs> yeah. But the game cannot survive on that. Yeah. So it's like there are three NPCs, okay? And there are three details per NPC. When you guys choose to interact with an NPC, I'll give you three more about that NPC. Mm. <laughs> so it and it's following the the how AGM should reveal information to players and taking that core idea of running a great game 
and flourishing that for camera and microphone. Yeah. But the priority is running a great game because what people enjoy watching are people having fun playing mm -hmm. this game. Yeah. So if everyone's not having fun, it gets a little bit harder, especially on camera where waiting your turn looks different. Whereas on a podcast, waiting your turn is non-existent. Yeah. Right. So on camera, move, 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 jump, 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 do this, do this, do this. In audio form, you can have more breaths. You can wait your turn, do this and stuff like that. Um, and then it's also what's the goal everyone wants to be here for? And what's the compromises that everyone's willing to have? Are we all here to tell a cool story? Great. That means gameplay doesn't really matter. To a certain degree, we all just want to, we do want to play the game, but story comes first. Yeah. Or is there a higher demand for having a fun game that we're all excited to play? Yeah. Well, then that is a priority. And then because we're recording and needing to tell a story, yeah. the clever ways of sneaking the story in, such as describe things clearer, more flourished, but keep them de uh, very tight. So that way it doesn't interrupt gameplay. Cut lore that doesn't matter. Get rid of it. No if, exposition. Get it yes. doesn't. If it doesn't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kill your babies. <laughs> if like that's why I'm starting a podcast with my friend Chris, who plays the dwarf in Curse of Amity Island, the lore of Aida. Mm. We we whatever lore that doesn't make the final cut, or even in the uncut lore that is mentioned but then not explored what's what's the deal with that why are dwarfs red <laughs> why are there no elves there these are things that we don't need to talk about in the game because they're not relevant to the adventure yeah um you know if we watch saving private ryan we don't want to know what's going on in american politics we just want to focus on the team saving private private ryan yeah. Um, I wanted to say Prince right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the lore podcast is really like, I will talk about the world and lock things more in a softer locked in canon because yeah. these are the things I thought about while building the adventure, um, but don't need to be in the adventure. Dude. I love, I love that. I hope that answered the question. I can't remember the question yeah. now. <laughs> well, it was, it was basically around performance versus performance. Yeah. Versus yeah. Organic so yeah, right. For, for me as a GM, it's a little bit of a harsh criticism for myself, but I try to compete with the last piece of entertainment my players had. Mm. Interesting, I, dude. I love that mentality, and I, I also, I also really. Uh, you know, something that you said, which I, I think I do just because I, I'm also neurodivergent. And for me, if there were 10 NPCs in a room, just as a GM, I'm like, ah, this is too much. I can't, yeah. I can't be dealing with all of this. So I, I, I think I naturally do, even though, you know, like, you know, one of, one of my favorite things that I have is that there's a, there's an NPC in our, in our world called Constantine Plainview. Um, and Tom has actually played this character. He, he's taken the role of the NPC in another little actual play series that we, that we did. And one of my favorite things about him is I know underneath it that he is actually a, a closeted, 
um, homosexual. He he keeps that very under wraps for himself, and he he attends a lot of um, you know uh, LGBTQ plus events in my world um, that are underground for himself because he is a prominent member in a mafia family, and you know for him uh, he he feels like he doesn't want people to know some of the things about him that could be used against him, basically. And uh, it's a it, it's a dangerous space to be in. You know, it's something that Tom really appreciated about the character when, you know, Tom was like, oh, okay, I'm going to play Constantine. And I was like, that's cool. Here's some stuff about him. And Tom was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting about him that, you know, we've been seeing him as this one thing during the game, but actually there's this like underlying lore that exists. And I think that's really important. Like you said, you know, giving the players what's almost relevant, like, you know, like, dude, you, you, I'm sure you and I understand, you know, there's mountains of things that will never come up in a game. There's hundreds of things that will never, ever see the light of day that we've written on paper, in, on documents, in computer or whatever, you know, that will never, ever be known by anyone. But the fact that we know it allows us to pick and choose the things that are super relevant in that moment to deliver to your players and to really kind of fill that story with life and things like that. So I think that point you made is just really super valuable. And any GMs that are out there listening who are, you know, wondering about that kind of stuff. And, you know, to me, exposition's a, a, a big thing. I, I'm such a, I, I hate in movies when someone's like, oh, and look, on the 14th day, it did this. I'm like, ah, me, really? I'm just going to have to sit here and listen to you tell me about this stuff so that later in the movie it becomes relevant to me. Like, I don't care. Like, just give it to me in an organic way. And I think that's such Which a, is hard. It's super hard. It's super, it's hard. super, it's super hard. I fully agree with you. It's super, super hard to do instead of just doing the classic lore dump, you know, as, 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 as we call it, you know. And so uh, I just really appreciate that mentality that you have. And, you know, you're, you're, I feel like actually um, your GM style sounds very similar to mine uh, across the board in the way that you, you think about your players and you're thinking about the story and you're thinking about, you know, fun, um, you know, telling a good story, having a good game, you know, all, all the kind of layers that you talked about sounds very similar to um, how I kind of go about my games. And I, I just really respect it, dude, and appreciate your your insight on all this stuff. And I think it's a lot of things that, again, like... <sighs> It's it's weird for me because you look at, you know, when you first get into GMing and you Google, you know, how to be a good dungeon master, for example, or what's what right. are five tips to be a good dungeon master? And you have Matt Mercer and his like GM tips, and you have Brendan Lee Mulligan, you know, being like, rah, rah, and Chris Perkins being like, use the books, you know, and and, and yep. all this shit, you know. What they don't tell you is some of this deeper layer stuff, some of the like almost philosophical stuff of, you know, being a GM of like, you know good practices that allow you and your players to have more fun, to not just be sat listening to a GM do a lore dump or a player tell you their entire backstory or, you know, this, that, and the other. And because it comes out more organically in, in the moment. And I think it's, it, like you said, it's super hard to do. And I think it's a skill that requires practice. It requires, just like everything in D&D, being a good player, being a good GM, being a good improvisational actor, you know, being... Uh, you know, and any part of the 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 pie that you want to cut of D and D requires practice. It requires repetition. It requires you doing it and learning and gaining feedback and you know adjusting the way you do things and doing all that stuff. And I feel like none of that is 
fucking talked about in amongst the like the upper echelon that we all kind of look at and go, wow, like bow down to the Abrea Iyengars, bow down to the Brennan Lee Mulligans. And it's very rare that I feel like I hear them go, you know, it's it's super tell them only the relevant in lore. You know, for, for you know, do do think about it in this way, you know, consider and I don't feel like that's talked about very much. So I appreciate you saying all of that, dude. Sorry. No, Go no, for no, it. Way I'm gonna just run to Lou quickly. Sorry, I'm actually desperate. Damn kidney. But the the story comes first. Just those three words. You know, if you have that centralized somewhere in whether you are the DM or you're a player, um, that can be your guiding light, right? That can be your um you know, I think your almost compass to keeping yourself from straying into places where it does get a little bit tedious with too much mechanics, too much, you know, too much grind in how am I going to beat this guy? What's, what's the absolute best action I can take right now? Where, dude, that five minutes or 30, whatever it is that you're thinking about that, grinding through that, that problem solving really isn't, isn't like what this is about. For, for story comes first. Story comes first is like timely, um, poignant, you know, flow of the story, complementing what's going. And if you don't get your absolute best action in that turn, it isn't important. Like something, something's going to happen that's slightly different, and it's going to be just as good or better actually because you didn't have to dwell on it. You didn't have to come out of character, and you have to ask the DM four different questions above table about, you know, what I can do and what I can't do and all this other stuff. You just kind of went with the story. And I think, you know, that those three words that you said, story comes first, really kind of symbolizes it for me, whether it's sharing what's relevant or or, or making sure the story can, can is... Can I challenge you? Go for it. I'm going to challenge you right now because I, I, I agree. Story for me as a GM always does come first. It's something that I, I, I very much feel like that's one of my key things as a GM. But something that I learned that I, I really appreciated about, um, I'm not sure if you've seen Crown of Candy uh, by mm -hmm. Dimension 20. Um, yeah. When when Allie Beardsley discovers who, di who, who like does the poison very early on in the campaign, and it threw Brennan completely off because uh, they roll an incredible uh, role. You know, he gives them some information and they... Uh, with this information, basically derail a mystery, uh, this political mystery that Brennan had been planning, and he talks about this in, in uh, I believe, the adventuring party after the uh, after the episode. And at that moment, he put game first because you know he he was like, I've 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 got an idea of where I want this plot to go. I've got a kind of conceptual idea of where this plot's going to go. And then Ali comes in with this nat twenty that throws a spanner into his whole thing. And suddenly game came first for him in that moment. And I, I, I respect that. I really love that. It taught me something about, you know, in moments like that, as a GM, you got to let go. You got to just let go of the reins and be like, okay, I'm, I'm here for your, your, your ride kind of thing. It, it's, a, it's a mod podge of, the, of both. So it's like yes. yeah. expectations, you know. Um, if I'm designing... If I'm Naughty Dog designing uh, The Last of Us, yeah, story is absolutely important because look at the results. Player choice gameplay is super important because that is how the players experience the story. 
Um, and I was, I told a friend the other day and he disagreed with me, but that's beyond the point is <laughs> last of us two without giving spoilers. Last of us two, I think is worse game design, more I focus agree. on story. I agree. Because there's a certain part of the game near the climax that there is no player agency. Um, if you don't do exactly what the story wants you to do, you die, start over. Yeah. Um, whereas, and they can still add player agency. Let's look at the climax of the first Last of Us. Here's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> when you enter the, the doctor's room at, near the end, 90% of players shoot the doctor. Yeah. You don't have to shoot the doctor to go pick up Ellie. That is good de game design because the moment you as a player learn you didn't have to shoot her or shoot the doctor, you go, wait, I want to try that again. What, why, why did it, do I have to kill anyone? Uh, was, no. was I just pre-programmed was i in the matrix that at that moment yeah right that's good game design saying that a simple choice existed and thus you start changing the way you thought about the whole thing but if oh i have to do this thing just to move on to the next one that because stories in in the way that's not good design mm. but all the players and the game designer or the GM and players can all agree up front, like, hey, we want to do a good story or we want to do a fun dungeon crawl, right? Both games can exist. We can both have Last of Us and Super Mario. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Love that example. Beautiful. <laughs> um, but like you're saying, when you're playing the game, especially role play tabletop role-playing games, what matters is happening at the table, right? Mm. This is what matters. It's like hanging out with your friends. If someone's getting mad that the controller's not working, pause the game, take a break. Let's maybe see if we can fix a controller and make sure the time that we're spending with each other is good. Mm. Um, that, that's like Matt Colville said it best. We're making music. Yep. That's what we're doing. We can make a bunch of music together different ways, but we're making music together. You know, it's not there's the composer orchestrating the musicians. No, we're just a band in the garage making music together. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's that balance of balance and expectation of what's the priority of the game story or gameplay. Cool. But once you're playing the game, you're playing the game. Mm, you yeah. you got to be flexible. You got to be patient and you're not the star. It's a group activity. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Drew, I have, I have one final big thing that I, I, I want to ask you because, you know, I, I've seen your actual play series and you have you. This, this stunning GM <laughs> screen. You've got, you know, you've got this stunning GM screen and I can see that there's things that you've clipped onto it. And there's there, I, I can tell that there's some, there's some mania. <laughs> going behind, going on behind the screen. I wanted to ask you, 
What are some of the tools that you're using behind the screen? What are like, are, do you have, you know, initiative cards? Are you using a stream deck to, you know, change lighting and, you know, do music? You know, are you one of those GMs that has it all on paper and are writing their notes in paper? Do you have a laptop in front of you? Do you have your minis back there? What's kind of your behind the screen setup? Because as a GM, I'm always curious. You know, I, I love seeing pictures of like Matt Mercer when they're showing the set. And you can see behind the screen, I'm like, oh, look at all the different things he's got there. That's so interesting. <laughs> or, or like, oh, look, look at what Abria's got going on over there. That's that makes there's so little behind her screen. That makes me very curious as to what she's doing, you know, and how she's thinking about stuff. So I'd love to know, you know, what's your GM screen setup? What are the tools that you're using behind your GM screen so that you can both tell a great story and play a great game? So because I'm controlling lights and music. I have a stream deck, and because of that, I have a laptop in front of me, and I utilize that laptop for the notes. And the primary notes that I use are writing down hit points, maybe a name, uh, and I keep track of whatever like checkpoints of the adventure, especially if it's a one-shot. What were mm -hmm. the checkpoints in that one-shot? um or the because i have four players the four scenes slash encounters i'm hoping to get to in this session which is something i i recommend new gms do is just prepare the number of scenes that you want to have equal to the number of players exist hmm. just have that prepared and let the we'll get there some might not make it, but you had those four and you're fine. Um, so that's what I have behind the GM screen. I have two D20s, no other dice. Mm. Uh, oh, oh, I like that. Okay. okay. Uh, if if it's a weird dice that has to get rolled, I make a player roll it for me. Love it. Um, if an NPC needs to make a roll, I make the players roll it. Mm. Um, the what else do I have back there? I occasionally have minis when I know it's big combat time. Mm -hmm. But then I also the problem is I then overload putting more minis there. So that way when the players walk by, because they have to walk by my gym to get to the there. So I was They're like, like oh, you don't know what's shit. going to actually come out. <laughs> um the old cloak and dagger. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The tool. And, that, and that's pretty much it. If I didn't control lights and music, I would probably have just a notepad and a pencil. Mm -hmm. um, but even on a home game, I like having a Bluetooth speaker in front of the GM screen and just controlling just a little bit of stuff because it brings everyone's brain a little bit in. Yeah. Um, especially when you think of competing with the last piece of entertainment you might have consumed. Mm. I'm competing for, for your attention against a movie a video game both millions of dollars worth of design i'm not that <laughs> uh tiktok twitter youtube i'm competing with all this that has billions of dollars backing its ability to grab your attention putting a little speaker putting out some toys <laughs> goes a long way and just like hey focus here mm. um what else do i have behind the gm screen
my microphone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yourself. Pretty much that myself. Uh, what I used to do, and I, I don't do that much anymore because I have the laptop and I can mm-hmm. quickly check something on an app mm-hmm. or a website, is my GM screen, I would glue the rules that I'm least familiar with, but feel are the things that come up the most. So I have all the ability checks, all the types of magic. Yeah. And I'm like, that's what I struggling to memorize, but needs to exist. I got the ability checks figured out. The magic needs to get a bigger spot on this GM screen. Uh, I have all the damage dice for all the weapons. Because a common question is like, what do I roll? D6. (laughs) Nice. Um, So that's how I use the GM screen is I put rules that I think are important, but I haven't yet memorized. Mm. Um, That's about it. Um, I don't have that many dice because I play with flat damage. Mm -hmm. So everyone no one rolls damage um on a home game i uh i might let the players roll damage if that's what they want uh but for on camera games we don't roll damage it's something that gets edited out already mm-hmm. so why not just get rid of it and we all agree that flat damage is what we're going to do for the sake of time yeah. and if you crit it's max damage Mm-hmm. Are you taking average otherwise? You're taking the... the, the, the uh, half the damage die plus the modifier. Love that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is great. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a great show. It's a, it, it is a really great show. I think also what you said about uh, getting players to roll stuff is a super, also, it's a super interesting concept that, uh, that I'm you, definitely going to think about. The first scene of the first episode of Curse Amity Island, we go into a flashback for Halleck. Um, and his town is raided. Um, my biggest issue with starting the show that way was when I was thinking about it, I was like, I have three other people at my table who are going to sit there for 10 to 15 minutes doing nothing. Mm. And that's their starting expectation of the game. Mm. That's, you know, at the right table, that's a reason to not play with that GM ever again. Mm. it's like oh right when we start 15 minutes and i don't do anything it i might be able to sit through this because you're recording it for your channel whatever but like it's a home game and i'm sitting here for 15 minutes doing nothing and it's the start of the game that's really harsh Mm. so i have um not just other npcs in the flashback rolling i have events so Halleck turns to run to his burning house to save his wife. Yeah. I turn to a player, not even having Allie roll. I ask her straight up, does he make it in time to save her or not? No roll. Mm. Tell me yes or no. And I, mm. I pull her into the game and her mm. first choice is crucial. Mm. Great. He gets to the house. Uh, I turn to Jordy. When he kicks in the door, does the door fall on top of him or not? Like, because it's a burning building. Does it all come mm. down on him? And he goes, yes. Roll a dexterity save. Um, and then when we get to the wife, 
she's caught in a burning building with smoke. I turn to Taco. I go, roll a constitution saving throw for her to see if she survives. Mm-hmm. And now they're all a part of the experience, this solo experience. And fucking genius. Yeah, it's great. Makes and, it so interactive, immersive. It's yeah. It's great. It's a great tool. And it's like, I don't need to be rolling these dice. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to be playing D&D by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, it also yeah. forces it also forces your players in, in a weird way. Like, to pay attention more? I, I was going to say, not even, like, it's not pitting them against each other. Because that is in no way what it's doing. But it like, does feel that way. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, when you ask, do you get there? And homie looks down the table and goes, do I get there? You know, like it becomes a moment of like, okay, you know, are, are your players going to crumble under the pressure of each other? Are they going to stand to one another? Are they going to play for the story in the moment? Or are they going to play to help their friend? And, and it's and, also and each other's taste in storytelling. Like yes. Allie yeah. loves romance. Yes, he's going to make it to his wife yeah. as Taco. No, he doesn't make it because I want to <laughs> hurt him. Right? <laughs> it's their taste. Um, and it, it's kind of diversifying the 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 situation and the obstacle. Mm. Right? It's kind of that weird ideal thing that corporate America kind of wants all the time is different perspectives from different backgrounds and different tastes influencing the creation of the story or the product. Mm. You got four other people. (laughs) You got four other brains. Like, you don't need to lock it all in place. Just do situations, little challenges, like a video game. Each one, and just put the, the choice on everybody else. And then you walk away from that situation and that that session with everyone's brains richer. Yeah, because we got to experience everyone's perspective and taste and choices, Heck, and that can be applied for NPCs where they're like, "What was the last one?" Gosh, um, uh, the next episode that's coming out, a big thing happened, and I needed to sit there and roll dexterity saving throws. For almost seven NPCs. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you guys roll. <laughs> mm. yeah. While I think on how to narrate what happened. <laughs> that's also that's also another another benefit of it, isn't it? Like you don't have to worry about just managerial the, the, skills. It's delegation. <laughs> it's delegation. Delegation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it does give you that space to to have a few more moments to collect your thoughts. Mm. Pacing, yeah. I think you can you can pace a little bit better sometimes when you're you know when you're DMing and you're you're doing you know you're spinning all the plates and you you're not quite as aware of you know the 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 actual arc the intent of the storytelling and this allows you just come to come up above the table a little bit more to read the scene take a breath assess exactly what's happening and then be able to kind of you know turn the dials at, at the appropriate pace which i think is it's really interesting that you can do that you, you just kind of given off a little bit of your responsibility to free up your mind i i fully agree i think uh, i mean god if there's a nugget in this podcast god that's that's a that's a piece of treasure right there for for gms out there and it's you know something you know i i have done like very minorly in in, in situations but never to the extent that you're talking about and i think 
you're you're right. I I, I really love the call. I'm a I'm a I'm a straight up steal that. I'm a I'm a I'm gonna use that going forward because that's genius. I, I I really like that. And as a GM, you know, I I very much enjoy you know the descriptive part of it and things like that. And so having that space to focus and not have to roll and you know also like in a weird way, I'll put this out there as well. As a GM, roll a dice and decide whether you're about to fudge that roll or whether you're about to keep that roll yourself. You you, know, and, you and, make that die roll very public. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by having someone else go, I rolled a three, and everyone knows yeah. that's low. What what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly, and so I think that's a, I think that's a really really good tool and one that uh, that that is awesome. I I just have to say, like across the board, you're you're an exceedingly well put together GM that that is looking at Thank you. their game from many different angles and and not just within the game and not just like when you're at the table, above the table from over here you know from this third angle from a fourth angle from you know and i think it's it's very rare uh, recently we've done a few podcasts with some very interesting people we just had the adh dm on as well and oh, i feel nice. like i feel like there's this kind of new not new wave of gm but there's there's a level of gms that kind of fly under the surface that are doing things that are spectacular things that are super super different you know i've I've recently started doing a style where, you know, I, I describe things similar to like the Spider-Verse in different styles of description of like, you know, trying to find ways to describe them in different ways that, you know, will change the perspective of how the players are seeing the moment. I'm like, you know, suddenly you see a watercolor splatter across the ground as opposed to being like, oh, and blood hits you in the face and you're like, ew, blood, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And and so I I really love these nuances of what I'm learning and, and the experience of these podcasts and what it's teaching me. So I just have to tell you, I've really, really appreciated yeah. this conversation and, and taking the time to learn a little bit about yourself and the amazing, you know, I, I, I already thought you were super kick-ass from my years of watching you on Corridor and consuming your actual play content. But, you know, it, it really, it really does, um, really does teach me a lot and, 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 make me question things that I do and, and things like that. So I, I appreciate you doing that for me because uh, shit, man, I love learning and, and, and this one's been an educational one for me for sure. As long as we're having fun playing our games, that's what really matters. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do recommend though, as the GM, you roll the attacks because you mm. have to be the bad guy. Yeah. They can't be the bad guy for each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, I agree with that. But if you got a, a special ability like a dragon's breath, Consider having someone else roll that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you're a super busy person spinning many plates and, and, and you know, crushing it out, out in the sphere. Um, I, just I do have a question. Over... Yes, I, please. I mean, so oh, we're clearly please. going to, like, the end no. point of this. Yeah, I do please, have a question. Please, please. Yeah, yeah. So, one of the fun things about offering movie ideas as a pitch Mm -hmm. or a DD adventure mm -hmm. everyone goes sits down and watch the movie and they're all inspired by things that you're not expecting right mm -hmm. one of my players for dante's peak wants to play the role of the greedy helicopter pilot who wants to overcharge people to get off the uh off the volcano mm -hmm. <laughs> so Love he it. has a hot, hot air balloon <laughs> amazing um and i'm trying to think of some mechanics to run hot air balloons do you have a recommendation on how i can run that <laughs> that uh that that's that is uh that is a wheelhouse that i am uh, proficient in as, <laughs> as it so happens 
Um, they call that a softball, I think. Yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> that means that's a... <laughs> um, no, so yeah, we... Obviously, we created Sky Zephyrs, which is a vehicle mechanic system for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. We're hoping to update it for 1D&D down the line uh, when, when I can be bothered to write mechanics again, because I just want to do some lore stuff in the next couple projects I do, because mechanics are freaking hard and, and, and very mind-consuming. Mind um, the, the answer to the question about a hot air balloon is um, hot air balloons are very difficult things because realistically the way hot air balloons work is i'm not sure how much you're aware about the mechanics of hot air balloons simply rising up and down um is what then changes their direction they use the air currents to fly and typically the the uh path of a hot air balloon is not pre-detested uh predetermined sorry um you cannot really choose where you land a hot air balloon you kind of just gotta cross your fingers and hope that the guy who's pulling the, uh, the the fire, you know, is getting you in the right air currents to get you where he needs to go. Mm. So it's that is a very hard thing to kind of represent in, in, in a game. Now, using Sky Zephyrs, we have it where at the helm, you're using speed points of whatever vehicle you're using to set the path of your, your vehicle and, and, and how that's going to go. I would speculate using our air zone rules, um, you could create some very interesting air zones for your game that would be very specific to um, possibly directional travel and which way it forces the balloon to go and things like that. And what you could then do is instead of having speed points that are spent, you could make it more based on what is the wind direction in the air zone that you are currently flying in. So. We, we give you five suggested air zones that are example air zones that you could use in your game uh, that work as a tier system. Within that, and the air zones a, are the elevation levels, right? Exactly. It's the height of what you're doing. So the way we've added three-dimensional travel, because that, that's what flying in the sky is. It's three-dimensional. It's not two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, the way we've done that is by adding layers to it. So you could be like, you know, I'm flying on the Terran zone, which is as close to the ground as you can be. Imagine, you know, the trench dive in uh, in A New Hope, and you're like cutting through buildings or like flying around mountains and doing that kind of stuff. Or you're in the congestion zone where most of the Zephyrs are flying. And, you know, there's a lot of smog up here. A lot of people have landing platforms high up in the sky. That means that there's a lot more smog. It's harder to breathe up here. So equipment is forced upon players to wear so that they can not deal with constitution saving throws constantly because they're in this smoggy area, you know. Then there's the meridian zone, which is, you know, the best place to fly. It's the most calm, the most tranquil, the least amount of, you know, like storms and wind direction problems happening. You've got the trade winds where all wind directions that are favorable or unfavorable are doubling how much they're doing, uh, how much they're affecting your ship and things like that. So, you know, the trade winds are used by traders so that they can go faster or, you know, try and get up in there and slow another ship down or things like that. So I would speculate, um, take what we've created, look at the air zones, look at the wind direction stuff that we have, look at the storm table that we have. And a bit of side tangent, a big thing with Sky Zephyrs is we want every gem to take what we've created and make it yours. Make it fit your game. Make it suit what you need. We've given you the foundations. We are the building blocks. We're the Lego that you can then build up into whatever you want to do. So take the air zones, take the wind direction rules, take the storm rules, 
and create a way so that when they get in this hot air balloon and your player has the ability to change altitude every turn, whether they come down into it and the wind direction's against them and suddenly they're blowing backwards or the wind direction's favorable and they're moving forwards in a way that they want to go. Oh, suddenly they've entered a storm and you know they're in the eye of the storm, which means they're fine this round. But next round, you know, a lightning strike from the volcano hits the balloon and does damage, hit, gives the balloon the compromise condition. Suddenly we're falling through air zones every turn and we need to repair the balloon quickly and all that kind of stuff. So that would be my suggestion of how I would go about running specifically a hot air balloon that doesn't have any sort of propellers or directional kind of turning and movement system. Now, if you want to add propellers and, you know, fans or sails um, or anything like that, which would allow a lot more, you know, control, then I would recommend using the standard movement rules and things like that that we were bringing out in V2 of Sky Zephyrs. Um, but that would be how I'd go about yeah. that. Do you have anything else you, you would add to that? Dude, that was, that was beautiful. That Thanks. Was just, <laughs> Thanks, dude. It's almost like you've thought a lot about this. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost like eight months of my life were dedicated to this. <laughs> um, but that, that would be how I'd go about it. Do you have any further questions or, or any, anything else about it that you'd be interested to know about? Um, well, I liked in, well, first, where can I find all those rules? Are they somewhere online? So um, currently, um, if you're a backer of the Kickstarter, you will have gotten V1 of the PDF, which we sent out to everyone and we got the community to publicly play test. We wanted everyone to test at their table, give us feedback. We wanted your guys' voices to be heard. We've now received that feedback. We've now written version two of the book. And we mm -hmm. actually, today, I put the final letter on the page we're sending it to the editor, doing final layout, and it will be released to the public probably end of December, early January. Ooh, um, ooh. And people will be able to pre-order that now on our website so they can go and pre-order the PDF or the hardcover book um, if they so please. Um, but yes, I imagine, I mean, I assume, and look, look, I, I, I'm not a perfect person, okay? I, 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 I do things that are shifty sometimes. I'm sure that once it's released, it will be on things like any flip and things like that where you can get free PDFs. If you want to go grab it on there, I mean, please, we'd love you to come and support us. But also, we understand not everyone can afford stuff. So, you know, do what you need to do. But um, yeah, those would be the places I, I, I would recommend that you could get it. I'm not sure if you yourself are a backer. If you're not, we will send you V2 after this, uh, see Mike, to make sure that you, you can utilize this for your hot air balloon stuff. The moment uh, the V2 stuff is done, there we you will 100% send that over to you. Good, because um, Dante's peak were playing in January. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Sorted. Um, we'll, get you, we'll get you V2. Yeah. And the, in the meantime, yep. we'll get you Something, V1 so you can start looking at that as well and start thinking about it ahead of time. Hell yeah! Uh, <laughs> uh, the thing I really... There's a lot going on in thinking about ships and vehicles. Mm -hmm. But something I really liked was... Because I've played space combat with SW5E. Oh, amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> and there's... There's a lot to be solved when it comes to vehicles. Mm -hmm. It's it's a different beast entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, so bless you for doing the God's work and delivering <laughs> what Paylor wants to us. <laughs> um, what I liked was your, shift, your variant rule on initiative. 
mm-hmm. where rather than every little thing, then the ships, which feels like it's bloating initiative versus mm-hmm. simplifying it. Mm-hmm. I like the variant option where it's we just go with the flying objects mm-hmm. and it's kind of a little bit of chaos of kind of teams like who's going doing what on each ship. It's yeah. far easier to track. It's a lower resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that. Okay. I really like okay. your air zone system because it really cleans up the idea of vertical move uh, versus five feet, 10 feet. And it's mm-hmm. like zones up here because this is a lower resolution thing that we don't need to think about all the time, but exists and can affect some details. I really love that thinking. Um, Offering different crew is cool. The because I uh reading the PDF that you sent me, I was inspired because I was like, I can now see an adventure in the sky with the way I DM. Yeah. Because I'm not going to run an adventure in the sky and sit there and design a system plus prep an adventure while world building. All at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Who then would do that? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would, I would, I, what I like is because one of the ways I world build is taking published adventures and source books that people have put countless amount of hours in and adapt it to my setting. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need a city. What's the water deep book saying about cities? You know, I don't want that money to go to waste. I might as well apply that logic to what I'm doing. And the same thing is you're offering that service and that thinking offload for so many GMs that are interested in sky stuff. Like in Aida, my world, there are no elemental planes. Mm -hmm. The Genasi are part of the world. Amazing. Love that. So what you would find in the water plane is in the ocean. What you would find in the fire plane exists maybe in the deserts or near the volcanoes. What you would find in the earth uh, realm exists in the mountains under the earth. Maybe a mix that with the underdark so they're together. Yeah. Um, the air genasi in the air realm, those are in the skies. I remember I was flying from Texas to California and I was looking out the window and I was just seeing the clouds were lined up just right. In like their zone-like way. And I was like, I could see people riding and climbing clouds. Hell yeah. And when I thought about Cloud City from Star Wars, I'm like, you know, the title of that is so disappointing when you see it's just a city, a metal city in the sky. Why isn't a city actually built out of the clouds? Mm, Um, So I, I, it's a fun idea. But I can't apply that to an adventure. How do I get, hey, this half elf and this dwarf up into the sky (laughs) without just like, and you guys fly up there. There's no (laughs) fun gameplay on the journey to the sky. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Um, And I really appreciate the work you put in and what you're offering to the community because it's amazing. Dude, (laughs) true. Truly, like like I said, th- that was, you know, Sky Zephyrs has been um, 
I, I've said this many times in many different videos, um, shorts, you know, things like that. And it's, it's the truest way that I can say it is, you know, I, I built my world, which is a, a world of floating islands. And my, my world, I fell in love with that concept from Avatar, the James Cameron movie. I, I, I really, you know, pieced it from there and was like, man, imagine a place where you're having to hop islands and get around and do all this stuff. And obviously, you know, I did the same thing everyone else does. Ah, Ghost of Soul Marsh doesn't cut it. Ah, Descent into Avernus doesn't cut it. Ah, Spelljammer doesn't cut it. Ah, Wildjammer doesn't really cut it. Ah, Star Wars 5e doesn't really cut it. You know, all these different things. And when I started designing Sky Zephyrs, it was a labor of love for my game. It was a, it was a thing that I needed in my world and a thing that I was craving and and actually i put it off for a good year because i was like this is too much i'm not i'm not i'm not developed enough as a gm to be able to handle this task and then when i felt i was ready i dove into it and the way i describe sky zephyrs is it is my love song to the ttrpg community it is something that i have written and it's my love song to you guys and all that i hope from the community is you know people can you know, just like any music, tell me that you freaking hate it. Tell me that you freaking love it. You play it once, play it a million times. I just hope it gets played on repeat within people's lives and that they get to enjoy um, what I've created because I really enjoyed building it along with, you know, my writing partner, Tony, along with our artist, Alex, along with our layout, um, our layout artist, Chris Hopper. And, you know, and, and it came together from all these beautiful minds putting their their heads together and creating this just freaking awesome supplement that I'm so, so proud of. Um, and the final thing that I wanted to just add to something you said is Sky Zephyr is, like I said, is designed to be modularized. You're, we've made systems for almost every little thing, you know, air zones, wind directions, storms, air crew, feats for players, boarding, landing, grappling, repairs, you know movement, combat, you know, uh, shooting across different zones, uh, you know, creatures, items, spells, you know, we've made all these different systems. And the goal here is you guys choose what's required for your world. If you want one thing that we've put in that book, if you just want the shanties that we've written in the downtime section, because you need a good sky shanty for your world, then take a shanty out of the book. If you want a, a single item that we've got. Take a shanty. Take, exactly. <laughs> take a shanty. Take, take an item. Take, you know, the, the wind direction. Take the movement. You know, whatever suits what you need, pull it out. You don't have to use all of it. It all works together, but you don't have to use all of it. It all works separately as well. That's why I designed it like that. And the final thing I'll say that is something that um, you, you would have probably not gotten the quick start and, and the V1 people did get a little peek at and, and the V2 people will get a, a refined version of is we also expanded these rules because sky is my thing. I love sky. Sky's my thing. But other people love space. Other people love uh, naval. Other people love subnautical. Um, and other people love land. And mm -hmm. all of those places have vehicles. <laughs> Surprising, right? <laughs> um, so we, right? So <laughs> we actually made conversion stuff for all of our rules so that you can run the same stuff we have for the sky, but for water, for under the water, for in space and on land. 
So not only is this book something that you can use for your sky, you know, taking your players up to the, the, the cloud city, but you can also use it to go check out Atlantis, go check out the Astral Sea, you know, go do a Mad Max campaign where, you know, you're, you're, you're tearing across the land and, you know, metal ass vehicles that are sick. You right. Know? Like, please like use it for all that stuff. That's what we envisioned when we created this. In Correct me if I'm wrong, but broad stroke speaking, the air zones are essentially flipped upside down to be depth, right? Dead on. Exactly. Right. 100%. It, 100%. Having, having those universal systems for D&D is what makes it so much more playable and expandable. Like, mm. combat in D&D is a universal tool on how to deal with conflict in combat. Yeah. Right. And it's uh, I made a video about this uh, traveling, not the old video, but a newer one that's coming out is I've taken travel from one E and applied it to five E. Love it. Because it is a universal travel system that feels like combat. We have turns. We Mm. either get in a combat uh, and a day is like one turn done. Fast travel, one turns a week. Slow travel, one turns a third of a day. But it's the mm-hmm. same universal system when it comes to long form travel. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a, it's one of those problems that, like you solved, is we need a universal system subsystem for this game mm-hmm. um, that can be applied to all things that are related to this vehicles. Mm-hmm. Just one vehicle system. Yeah. Players and GMs alike don't need to have a different thing for cars, boats, and planes. I don't know if you can hear that lawnmower outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, and having a universal system is a game changer. It it makes it so much easier to memorize. It's like, what if every cleric was a different system versus having a core cleric and then subclasses? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that would be so annoying. <laughs> Yeah, right. I think um great job. You're you're for first of all, thank you for all of the amazing compliments. Truly, like I I can't tell you how much it means, not only coming from you personally, but also just hearing someone who has is taking the time to read it and understand some of the stuff that we put into it. And uh that just means truly a mountain to me. Like more more than I, I like we spoke the other day with someone, you can express gratitude in a way that, that, that is right with words. And uh, that truly means more than I will ever be able to express to you in this video call. But thank you for that. Um, and, uh, and we really hope that people find it like that. And, you know, at the moment, Sky Zephyrs is a small thing. You know, we had 800 incredible people coming back the project and come and believe in what we do, come and see like you, you know, what we do. And we hope that over the years, people suddenly start finding it and start discovering it. And a friend tells them, hey, you want vehicles? Oh, check check this out. You know, and so I, I'm just thankful that I got a chance to be that person. I'm super thankful that I, I got an opportunity to step up to the plate and hopefully knock it out of the park for people. Um, so, no, yeah, very, very much appreciate that. And and I appreciate you seeing that like it, 
like I said, just means a fucking lot. It re- really mm. means a lot that 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 people are seeing that out there and understanding it and appreciating it. So and turning this whole podcast around. Yeah, <laughs> how did that just happen? Well, what just happened? Jedi mind tricked us into. Yeah. Do you want to close the show because it's your show now? <laughs> this is not the C mic you're looking for. <laughs> um, dude, I'll hand it back right over to you. Please tell the people where they can find your content, what you've got coming up, what projects you want them to go check out, um, and, and where people can just kind of go and gravitate to the amazing work you're doing at the moment. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to let everyone who's still listening to come find me. Uh, I may have bored many of them away. <laughs> uh, come on over to Fables D20. It's on YouTube. We me and my friends, we play Dungeons and Dragons and in the near future, some other tabletop games as well. We played the Alien RPG, which is freaking amazing. Uh, we have a Patreon, same name, Fables E20, uh, but we don't just play actual play games. Uh, we, well, I do homebrew videos. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, Chris and I are doing lore podcasts so that we we're talking about world building and lore to make D&D our own thing. And um, our actual plays are edited cinematically, camera switching, sound effects, sound design, music. Um, it's a lot of work and it's just stuff that I love. I stream every Tuesday on the channel, crafting and painting these sick D&D stairs that take weeks to make. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's that's kind of what i'm doing online and i i really enjoy it uh every adventure as we mentioned before is inspired by movies something that i really love and what i'm experimenting behind the scenes is adapting the adventures that we play into sellable modules Mm, so curse of amity island which is based off of jaws we're working on a book which because this is another thing to learn if you ever want to learn how to be a great gm record the game doesn't have to be cameras just record it with a microphone and listen back another way to do it did your event was your adventure too bloated or not adapt it into a book and you'll know if you bloated it or not (laughs) um so that's stuff that that i'm working on hell yeah well that's do you know what that's kick ass and you know what it has been an honor, a pleasure, a learning experience, and just the, the, the some of the best two hours that we've had podcasting. Um, really and, you know, Tom and I are actually going to be rounding out some of our podcasting content next year, sharpening the arrow to things that you know we 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 really want to uh, really want to push forward <laughs> to. So you know, as we're coming to the end of kind of our our is it third third season mm. of of Hat D podcasts. Um, we are so, so thankful to, to, to have had you on, to have you be part of this and, uh, dude, thank you so, so much for coming. We, we very much appreciate it. Like very much fucking appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me and congratulations on your success and the first step to even more successes. Thank you, dude. Thank you, you too, man. Um, as always, we've been homie and the dude, the father and son. TTRPG, oh, and MMAT. Um, <laughs> if you would like to check out uh, what we do here at Homie and the Dude, the best place to do so, we've got our YouTube channel, subscribe to that. Um, but as well as that, we have our Discord community. 
It's a super inclusive, diverse space, uh, safe space of amazing TTRPG people that shoot the shit, talk about goofy things, as well as also give advice, hang out. Um, and we will be in the next year running workshops for GMs and players alike, where we will be teaching you guys some stuff, refining your guys' games, as well as also partaking in activities as a group um, through Discord and hopefully getting to know all of you a little bit better. We may even be inviting guest GMs to participate mm. and share their words of wisdom. Oh. Just, just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, thank you so much for watching. We super, super appreciate it. Bleh, appreciate it. And we will catch you guys in the next episode. See you then. Bye. You won't catch Bye. me. I, I, this is my only episode. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>